What a story, what a story, what a story. What a story, what a story, what a story. Good afternoon. On the last Saturday of the month. What a story. This episode is all about fathers. I know Father's Day was last week, but I only get the last Saturday of the month. Give a listen. Top of the lineup, Mark Green. Next, Susan Jacobson. Last, myself. say thank you even if I'm still home. Good evening. My name's Mark Green. I'm an executive editor at the Goodman Project and my story for you today is called The Last Late Show with My Father. Um, my father was Irish and he was a salesman and uh, Late in his life, I found a very small piece of paper tucked in the back of his wallet, and it was uh, it was a eight and a half by eleven piece of paper that was folded down into sixteenths and tucked in the back. And on it, in um, in an old manual typewriter typewriting, was twenty to thirty of these joke summaries, right? And they were all lined up, and there'd be a little hint about the punchline and stuff. And he had carried this for decades as uh, part and parcel of his work as a salesman. Uh, I think, the, I think it was indicative of the fact that he loved to tell stories and he loved to connect with people. And uh, my father had this gift that when he connected with you, uh, he took such pleasure in that moment that you felt like you were standing in warm sunshine. And it was a powerful experience and it wasn't fake and it wasn't contrived. When he had it in him to connect, it was a wonderful thing. My parents divorced when I was seven years old and he, he disappeared. He dropped off the face of the earth in that moment. And it, it, it's an interesting sentence, my parents divorced. It's a little like uh, uh, Hiroshima got bombed. You know, it doesn't really do justice to the complexity of the outcome. But, um, but my father and my mother divorced and they did the classic 60s, uh, uh, hateful, argumentative, binary, nasty divorce. And he, uh, shortly thereafter, took a sales job in the Middle East selling oil field equipment. So he was gone for a number of years. And when he left, um, I think a very large part of me left with him. And I missed him more than I can possibly say. And, and I, at this point, I don't remember much about that part of my life. It's as if I simply refuse to remember it, um, the loss of him. A little while ago, I, I sat down to write about my father. And to my surprise, a story popped up full-blown, completely there in all details uh, from when I was four or five years old. And the story <clears throat> goes like this. When I was a little kid, my uh, parents would put me to bed. I don't know. My brother and I would be put to bed maybe 7.30 in the evening. My brother, he was a sleeper, but I was a listener. So he would go to sleep and I would lay there listening to the sounds inside and outside of our house. And the 
funny thing was like if a car drove by on our little quiet suburban street in Houston, something about the sound of that car going by made me feel so safe and at peace, as if that, that car was going by just for me. And I would lay there and listen to the air conditioner switching on and off next door. And then I would hear the sounds in the house start to quiet down. And my older sisters would go to bed. And then my mother would go to bed. And, and then my father would sit up watching TV. And I could hear the, the muffled sound of the television. And at some point, he would get up and go into the kitchen and make himself a milkshake. Back then, we, uh, we made milkshakes out of something called melarine, which apparently, as I understand it now with a little research, was a byproduct of the cottonseed oil industry after the Second World War. They, the demand dropped off from the War Department, so some enterprising cottonseed manufacturers figured out how to make ice cream without butter fat. They would put cottonseed oil in, and that was melarine, and we loved it. And he would, he would turn on this old Osterizer blender with the big black lid on top, and for about a minute it sounded like he was grinding human teeth in the kitchen, and then it would shut off. And at that moment, I would get up and creep out of my bed and sneak past my brother's bed and go to the door and just open it an inch. And I honestly don't remember when I got the gumption to do this the first time, but, uh, but it happened a number of times. And I would peek down the hall, and there at the end of the hallway of this classic 50s ranch-style house would be the couch and my father sitting there with a golden light behind him from the lamp and he would gesture for me to come. He could see this little eye looking out. And so I would creep into the hall very quietly and close the door because I certainly didn't want my brother to catch on that this was even possible to be done. I'd close the door and I'd race down the hall and jump on the couch. And there next to him at the little table next to the um, sofa would be um, two milkshakes, one for him and one for me. And I would tuck myself in under my father's arm and, and we would watch The Late Show together. And The Late Show in Houston in the 1960s was just a local television program where they'd run old movies from the 40s and 50s. And they had a, a title card that had a little drawing of a nighttime city with some stars and a moon. And then it would say The Late Show. And there was a song that came on when they did this little title card and it went like this. The Late Show, nothing could be finer than The Late Show, nothing could be greater than the greatest of stars, right on your own TV. It was kind of a Lemon Sisters thing, you know, it was a kind of a jazz hands moment. And, and I remember that song to this day. And I don't remember years of my childhood thereafter, but I remember that song. And I also remember sitting there, tucked under my father's arm with this glass with this milkshake in it and I would look down into the glass I can see it today and the clumps of milkshake as I sipped away at it with the little fissures and cracks as it settled into the bottom sometimes I would drink that milkshake quickly because it was so good and other times I would drink it slowly because I didn't want to get sent back to my bed yet and my father and I would sit watching these big bulbous automobiles, you know, with gangsters firing machine guns out the window, racing around on the TV screen, or, or cowboys riding through the Old West, or whatever it was. And eventually I would find myself sitting there with an empty glass growing warm in my hands. And my dad would say, okay, buddy, off to bed. And I would hand him the cup, go back down the hall, get in my bed, and go to sleep. Uh, Later in life, in my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, uh, my father and I reconnected. And we had a lot of wonderful times together. We smoked cigars and drank tequila and hung out, and, and it was a terrific relationship. But um, about six months ago, uh, it became obvious to me that my father was getting extremely ill. 
and uh, was probably going to die. And in the moment that this became clear to me, I, uh, with the help of my lovely wife and the other people in my life, I, I was able to commit to going down and being with him. So I went to Houston, Texas, and I started doing hospice care for my father. And uh, I got some help from an unexpected quarter. Out of the blue, uh, this fabulous gay man named Gus Baca just dropped into my life. And he said, hi, he's my dad too, and your family, and I'm here to help. And I said, okay. Gus was not literally my father's son, but he was one of a group of, of gay men that my father and my stepmother became friends with uh, up north uh, at a and b they used to go to regularly. And I once later asked my father why he was so comfortable with gay men. And his answer was very simple. He said, they're not like this. I said, yeah, no, it's true. And, uh, and so Gus and I partnered to take care of my father and um, we would sleep on the floor on these mattresses in the living room and we would go into his bedroom and help him. We traded off. Gus would be there for a couple of weeks. I would be there. But toward the end of his life, we both stayed there together and helped him. And there is one single thing that my father did all the way up to the last moments of his life. And it's something that he did all his life. He joked with us. He told jokes, he, um, he made faces, he did little pantomimes. When his voice began to fail him, he continued to wink and, and whisper jokes. He, he did this because he was caring for us, even as we were partnering to care for him. He was telling us, this is not so bad, and, and we can keep this light, and we can have a little fun, no matter what's going on. So. Gus and I took care of him, and, um, and a couple of days before he passed, uh, continuing to joke, and, and for example, one of the jokes he did regularly was he would, uh, we had these helicopters that would go over occasionally, and he would pull the sheets up like this, and he'd say, they finally found me, hide me, you know, and, uh, and uh, but a couple of days before my father passed, he, he asked the hospice nurse to marry him, and <laughs> He wasn't asking her to marry him. He was joking about asking her to marry him, and she knew this. And uh, she leaned down over him and she said, there is not another man in the world I would even entertain that question from. But from you, yes, I'll marry you. And he whispered back, I'll find a ring. <laughs> and she and I left the room and went into the adjoining living room, and she put her hand over her heart and she said, he breaks my heart. And I said, yes, he does. And uh, so we stayed with my father, and his voice disappeared, and eventually he became unconscious. And uh, a couple of nights later, and this was just a month ago, um, I woke up in the, in, the, in the night, and I could hear him breathing, his laboring breathing. And so I went over to Gus Baca, who, uh, on his little mattress, and I... I touched his arm and we got up and we went in and we sat with my father and each of us took one of his hands and we gave him morphine because his breathing was too fast and we sat with him for an hour and we told stories back and forth about him and after another hour we gave him another dose of morphine a significant one and his breathing finally slowed down a little bit and although we didn't know it these were the last minutes of his life and in these last minutes he cared for us in one more way 
Gus and I, once he calmed down, decided to get up and go in the adjoining room and get a cup of coffee from the coffee maker. And we did that, and we told a couple of more stories while we were in there, and we were laughing a little bit quietly, and I'm sure he could hear us. And then I turned and I went back into the room, and m my father was not breathing. And I looked to Gus, and I shook my head, and Gus came in past me, and he checked my father's pulse, and he said, he's gone, he's passed. And Gus, who has done, um, Gus is, by the way, never mind the fact that he's a registered nurse, retired registered nurse, dropped out of the sky. He had done hospice work, and the hospice nurse also told me, she collaborated, collaborated this, that, that a lot of people wait till their loved ones are out of the room, even for two minutes going to the bathroom to pass, because they don't want them to have to see it. So even in that final moment, my father had figured out a way to look out for us. And um, out of all this, I've come up with two two stories. My father gave me a story when I was five years old that carried me through his absence because he had to go away for a while. And uh, whether he knew it or not, that story was central to how I viewed myself as a person who was worthy of being loved and who was cared for and who could stand in the warm light. And now that my father has passed, I realize he's given me another story because he's had to go away again. And the story he has given me is not only that I am loved and that I can stand in that warm light, but that I can care for others and provide it for them as well. And it's a lesson I will never forget. And I thank you, Dad. Collecting Driftwood. I pull up the driveway of the two-story ranch house where I grew up and park in front of the double garage. The oak tree in the side yard is in full summer leaf and it's hot out. I unbuckle Emma from her car seat and carry her and my suitcase up the side path into the screened porch, my mom's favorite room in the house. She's sitting at the table, juggling a cigarette book, and an extra dry gin martini. She jumps up to greet me and Emma, who recently turned one. Inside the house, Dad sits at the round oak kitchen table amid stacks of the Washington Post, New Yorkers, and pads of yellow-lined paper full of lists and notes. It's always been his spot in that corner, surrounded by his piles of stuff. He's lost more weight since I saw him three months ago, his shirt looser around his shoulders. Dad's always been a moose of a man, boxy torso set atop bony, spindly legs, a mop of thick, curly hair on his head. Early years spent working as an artist and teacher, eventually choosing the path of therapist and family man. His patients come to him year after year, seeking his guidance as they navigate life, marry, have families, go through divorces, remarriages. He once told me to just be aware that one person in a couple generally becomes the anchor, the other the kite. 
Today he needs help walking to the bedroom. I guide his bony hips down the long hallway, feet shuffling. This oak of a man, a withered branch of his former self. A craggly silhouette, angular, just like the driftwood we used to collect on the banks of South Pond. I'm 18. That is 53. It's a cool Maine morning with a brilliant blue sky. We push out from the overhanging boughs of the pine trees and we're suddenly soaked in sun. Two loons break the surface from below, look at us and dive back down. Bracing my left hand against the top of the motor, I pull the tethered cord until the motor sputters to life. Three tries, not bad. Dad and I navigate through a tangle of lily pads, grasses, and hidden boulders. Then I increase the speed and we cut straight across the black center of South Pond. Dad and I are on a mission. I turn off the motor, let the current pull us along, and we scan the shore for big pieces of driftwood, silvered branches, sculpted trunks, a piece to add to his collection. Look closely, pay attention, be curious. Dad has taught me to appreciate things weathered and worn. I am seven, Dad and I are in the basement rec room. It is dark and dank. Dad sets up his slide projector and unfurls the tripod screen. I am sitting on a yellow beanbag chair, nestling my toes in the fluffy shag rug. Dad presses the remote clicker. The carousel tray turns and the screen fills with photos he has taken. A crack and a cement wall. Peeling paint. The splintered siding of an old barn. Radiant splotches of pinks and peach mixed with green and turquoise and yellow fill the screen. (gasps) What do you think it is? Dad asks. I have no idea. Look closer. I don't know. It's a close-up of a rusty dumpster. What? It's a close-up of a rusty dumpster. A rusty dumpster? At the Hirshhorn Museum, Dad makes me get up close to the Rothko paintings. We explore the way the colors blend, the way the parts make up the whole, and I start to look at things more closely. I notice art materials all around me. On the way home from school, I collect discarded objects, a tumbleweed of colored wires, a smashed transistor radio. Dad and I build sculptures by embedding them in plaster of Paris, finding possibility in unexpected places. From the boat, Dad and I see a big piece of driftwood standing half submerged in ooze and green slime. The curve of the branches resembles a gray heron. We row closer. 
Dad presses the oar into the mucky lake bottom to steady us as I balance on the bow and grab the towering silver arches. Dragonflies dart around my face as I tease the wood from its muddy roots. A great sucking sound. And the wood, freed from the mud, bends towards me. We lift it alongside the boat and secure it with a frayed piece of yellow nylon rope, which prickles my fingers. Mm, A smell of earth and leaf pulp fills the boat. I start the motor up, careful not to let the branches or the rope catch in the propeller. The bow rises as I twist the grip throttle. We bounce gently over the swells created by a passing motorboat. Cool water sprays on my face and arms and the breeze and water revive my sunburned body. I'm thinking about David, my new boyfriend, his thick, dark hair, his soft olive skin and deep blue eyes, his muscled body. I tell dad that David and I are thinking about spending the summer in Boston that we plan to get a summer rental and we will get summer jobs there. And then we will come back later in August and join the family in Maine. (laughs) Oh, for Christ's sake, you are not a we, dad says. A dragonfly settles on his shoulder as if he were a piece of driftwood himself. You're only 18. Ten years later, when I finally marry David, Dad makes a speech at the reception. You are now a we, he says, and presents us each with a white Hanes t-shirt, one with a hand-drawn W, the other with a hand-drawn E. I support my dad as he lowers himself onto the edge of the mattress He presses his shaking arms into the mattress and struggles to shift his pelvis back against the pillow. He leans back. I sit down beside him. Dad's large canvases hang on the walls, one built of different shades and textures of layered black oil paint, irregular triangles with small turquoise circles floating in the vast blackness. Another, with energized streaks and shifting rectangles of yellow, peach, red, and orange, revolving around a warm oval of honey yellow radiating off-center. He stopped working as an artist, but he never stopped being an artist. He passes me a pile of his stationery from the bedside table, a pen, and dictates notes to his patients, explaining he won't be able to see them again. I pause for a moment and put down the pen. Hey, Dad, how would you feel about writing a letter to Emma? I'd really like her to get to know you somehow. He stares down at the quilted bedspread. Sure, why not? Dad dictates letters as we move through his overburdened address book. Dear Thomas, I am sorry to let you know that I am retiring from my practice. Dear Jeffrey, 
I am so sorry to let you know I won't be able to see you anymore on our Fridays. Dear Kate, Dr. Johnson will be taking over my practice. He is a kind and insightful man who I'm sure you will like. Dear Annabelle, it has been a pleasure to work with you for all these years. Sincerely, Dr. Jacobson. He has lost weight. His skin hangs from his high cheekbones, but he still has his hair, a mop of curly silver hair. I pause and put down the pen again. Dad, are you afraid of dying? I wonder what it will be like. I don't want to struggle. I'm tired. I don't want to soil the bed. I pick the pen up. We write note after note. I stop again. Dad, you know what I'm going to miss most? Being able to talk to you. He looks at me with his hollowed out pale blue eyes. Does what I say ever really surprise you? No, not really. Well then, you can talk to me anytime you want. We both know that this is true and not true at the same time. We set up a card table in the bedroom. He no longer joins us for meals. He no longer sits in his chair at the kitchen table. Back home in Manhattan, I wake up every morning thinking it's all a dream. And then, moments later, a leaden stone of reality settles in my gut. I make magical bargains. If I can cross Broadway before the light starts blinking, my dad will go into remission. I look for mystical signs. A purple crocus appears in Riverside Park after the first fall frost. It must be a sign my dad will beat the cancer. As I push the stroller, plastic grocery bags balanced on the handles and Emma tucked under a white blanket with pink and blue bows, everyone around me is acting so normal, rushing up and down the New York streets. And I wonder if they have similar private tragedies consuming their thoughts, quickening their breath. Does anyone else feel like screaming? Mom calls. Dad isn't doing well. He hasn't left the bedroom since the moment I walked him down the long hallway. Hospice has been called. After talking with David, I call mom back and tell her that David, Emma, and I are on our way. David and I throw clothes and baby things into a suitcase, cuddly, snacks, diapers, blanket. I buckle Emma into her car seat. David gets behind the wheel. We head up the West Side Highway, cross the GW Bridge. The landscape sweeps by. Images of my dad click through my mind like a slideshow. Building sandcastles with spiral staircases. Feeding bologna off the dock to the sunfish. Dancing together in the living room. The lullaby he made for me when I was a baby, which I now sing to Emma. The mom is in the nursery with the baby, a singing and a rocking her to sleep. 
She's been there for four hours and a quarter, enough to make you sit right down and weep. I try to accept what is happening, what is about to happen. David asked me if I'm okay. Well, of course I'm not okay. How can I be okay? And David asked if I want a divorce. I mean, what is he talking about? What are you talking about? Just because you can't make me feel better in this situation does not mean Emma starts crying. I reach back and hand her her cuddly. She holds it to her lips and stops crying. Oh, I wish I had a cuddly. I take David's hand. We arrive. Mom takes Emma into her arms. My brother, John, gives me a long hug. David and I go into the bedroom. Dad is in a coma-like state, eyes closed, breath irregular. A collection of bones, still. Hi, Dad. His eyes open, focus on me, a weak smile. It's okay. I'm here. He closes his eyes. David leaves so I can be alone with dad. I sit on the edge of the bed. A box of Kleenex and unread New Yorkers wait on the nightstand. A small wire wishing tree he made for my mom many years ago with pennies and little bells entwined in the branches sits on the bookshelf collecting dust. His lips are parched. I take the sponge that's on a stick, dip it into a glass of water, moisten his lips. It's okay. You can go now. I take his hand. Oxygen flows through a small plastic tube and into his nose. The oxygen machine puts out a rhythmic sound. I think he would like music. He had a huge jazz collection. I bring a boom box into the room, put it on top of the dresser, slide a cassette into the deck and take his hand again. His old pale hand spots. Warm, still warm. The way your smile just beams, the way you sing off key. The way you haunt my dreams. No, no, they can't take that away from me. No, they can't take that away from me. His breaths get farther and farther apart. I call the rest of the family and we sit around the bed together. We watch for each breath. He breathes. He stops. We wonder if, and then another breath comes until it doesn't. He goes gently. He does not soil the bed. It's early evening. I call the funeral home. I put Emma to bed in a crib in my old room. It's next to my parents' bedroom where my dad's body waits. Mom, David, John, and I sit around the kitchen table waiting for the funeral director to arrive. Hey, do you remember when suddenly we are silenced by a 
guttural moan coming from where Emma has been sleeping. I rushed down the hall and into my old room. Emma is standing in her crib, hands gripping the top rail, sturdy little legs firmly planted. She's smiling and she's still... I have never heard that kind of sound escape from her little body or from anybody's body. Now she's not upset. It's not a cry. It's primal. It's, it's a, a, a primal sound. I'm making a statement sound. And then she stops, smiles, sits, rolls onto her side, grabs her cuddly and goes back to sleep. What was that? I mean, was she talking with my dad? Was she saying goodbye? Or was she just reminding me that she's still here? I stand by the crib for a long time and watch her breathing, her little body lifting and falling, lifting and falling. The rhythm, easy, steady, life. A few years later, the family decides it's time. Mom, John, David, Emma, and I, newly pregnant with our soon-to-be son, Jake, drive up to the cabin on South Pond. We arrive in the early evening and are greeted by that reassuring cabin smell warm dried wood mixed with old books. David turns on the low basket light in the living room. Painted rocks line the floor and ledges and are tucked into the nooks formed by the crisscrossed studs. Dad started the rock painting tradition. Each summer, we bring rocks up from the lake and paint them with testers all-purpose gloss enamel. Swirls of red, white, and blue for the bicentennial in 1976. Raindrops for 1973, when it rained all summer. Each rock is a whimsical work of art. I pick up a rock with E-M-M-A painted on it. Dad had used a fine brush and primary colors. Each interwoven letter was precise and playful, and her name fit perfectly on the face of the stone. Dad painted it to commemorate Emma's first summer in Maine. It was the last summer he was here. After dinner, David, John, and I carry beer, blankets, and flashlights down the steep wooden steps to the dock. There's no moon. The Black Lake is speckled with millions of stars. We lay on our backs and look up at the sky. We are floating in a womb of stars. A train rumbles and winds along the eastern edge of the lake like a child's toy. Twelve cars, I say. Fifteen, John says. Dad made up the game. When we heard the train whistle, we each guessed how many cars the engine was pulling just by the sound of the train clacking along the track. Then we'd race outside, the screen door slamming behind us, and count the cars as they passed through a gap in the trees on the far shore. Sometimes there were more than 30 cars. Sometimes there were two cabooses. Sometimes I was right. 
The next morning, it's time. I open my suitcase and get out the box. It's coated in black plastic, the size of half a shoebox and just about as heavy. We leave Emma with my mom on the porch and David, John, and I head back down to the dock. The lake is so still that the trees, blue sky, and white puffs of clouds are perfectly painted on its surface. The world upside down. I untie the yellow nylon rope and we push off the dock. No motor. I row out into the lake. The black box sits beside me. Bright circles of pale green fish beds appear just under the surface, swept clear of lake muck and debris by the fish preparing to lay their eggs. Slimy green clouds of frog eggs cling to the submerged branches of great fallen pines. Driftwood, like scattered skeletons, lay strewn along the shore. We get to the middle of the lake. I stop rowing. I pull up the oars. The boat drifts. I place the black box on my lap. I open the lid. I pull out the clear plastic bag. I untwist the tie. I tilt the bag over the edge of the boat and sprinkle out the contents, the ashes and chunks of bone float on the surface of the water, spread out. Dad used to float on the lake, his fingers laced behind his head, staring at the sky, effortless. None of us could do that. Rays of the sun pierce the surface of the lake. Then the lake splinters the light into the darkness below. The water-soaked ashes sink down through the clear, cold water, sparkling as they fall and linger. He slips away. A few months ago, I went to the main cabin alone. It's early twilight. A crescent moon smiles in the sky. I get into the boat, unhook the yellow nylon rope and push the boat into the lake. A loon pops up, surveys the surface of the quiet lake and dives back down. It's been 25 years since dad died. I'm about the same age he was when we pulled up that huge piece of driftwood. The week after Dad died, I went through his nightstand, his dresser and bookshelf, looking for that letter he promised. It wasn't there. It wasn't anywhere. I was beyond disappointed. I was mad that he never wrote it. I was scared. I wanted and needed his guidance. That letter wasn't for Emma. It was for me. But I guess it's here. He's given me this, a way of seeing and being. He's given me the little notes and drawings I find in the most unusual places. 
and now I've written my own letter for him. Time moves on. Emma has graduated from college and moved to Madison, Wisconsin. Jake's finishing up college. But in Maine, we still work on puzzles. We still watch the stars from the dock. We still paint rocks. Emma and Jake put down their phones and we all race out, the screen door slamming behind us and count the boxcars as they pass through the gap in the trees on the far shore. Transient permanence. My own oxymoron. Racing my left hand against the top of the motor, I pull the tethered cord until the motor sputters to life. Four tries, not bad. I head toward a large fallen tree, reclining on its side, silver driftwood reaching to the sky. I turn off the motor and grab onto the gray trunk. I pull the boat along the branches and explore the crevices. Lacy patches of gray-green lichen border a long, thick blanket of moss. Seedlings take root. Tiny insects crawl around the seedlings and up and over the mounds of moss. A ribbon of fungus grows along the edge of the crevice. Little pink mushrooms. An entire civilization all nestled inside the silvered branch. Everything ending. Everything beginning. A dragonfly settles on the driftwood, huge blue eyes, a large torso, and fine, frail legs. The veins on his wings spread out like cracks in a piece of porcelain. Each pattern is different, like a fingerprint. He darts away. A few feet from the boat, a loon breaks the surface, iridescent black head, black and white checkered body, a long mournful cry. I'm here. Where are you? Moments later, from across the lake, another loon answers. I'm here. I'm right here. Daddy's Gunslinging Daughter. On August 5th, 1962, just 18 months before my father would drink and medicate himself to death, he was on the dock of our lake house, giving his boat a tune-up. The sun was darkening his broad shoulders. His toolbox was open as he leaned over the outboard motor. I inched up behind him to tell him what I had just heard on the radio. Marilyn Monroe is dead from an overdose. I watched as his wrench fell onto the gunnel 
He slumped forward to cover his face. His broad back heaved, and then he wept. Three months earlier, my father had phoned from his office to ask me if I would accompany him to Madison Square Garden for John F. Kennedy's 45th birthday party. My mother couldn't come, he said. Well, she was boycotting the president's rumored affair with Marilyn Monroe. And to top it off, that husband stealer was supposedly going to sing happy birthday on stage in front of America. I was ecstatic. 15,000 important guests. And I, at age 15, was one of them. On the way to school with my father, I tried to discuss the event and its political importance. I wanted to make my daddy proud of my intellect. The night of the party, I put a peroxide streak in my beehive hairdo. When dad rang the buzzer from the lobby to let me know he was waiting in the car, I teetered to the curb in four inch heels I had never worn before. Walking into Madison Square Garden was intoxicating. Flashes of white ermine wraps, diamonds glittered around me. I tried to make out the faces of movie stars in the front rows, but all I saw were a zillion small heads bobbing in the dark. Daddy and his union buddies climbed the stairs to the balcony together. I trailed behind them, hobbling. No one turned around to see if I had fallen, or even if I was still there. The men were lined up in the front row of the balcony. When Marilyn sashayed onto the stage, my father's jaw went slack. She appeared to be naked. She had been sewn into a flesh-colored dress. There was no underwear to speak of. My father leaned precariously over the railing, watching Marilyn blink and flutter her fake lashes. I wanted to cry out, Daddy, Daddy, she's pathetic. But I couldn't get a word in edgewise. As that breathy voice began to sing, the noise from the male audience was overwhelming. I looked around me. These were important men, men with brains, hypnotized by a woman's hip gyrations. For the first time, I understood the divide between the demure daughter I was and the women whose looks and actions caught the attention of grown men. And not just grown men, but heroes. Heroes like the president. Heroes like my father. On the silent ride home, I felt an insurmountable barrier growing between daddy and me. His significance was increasing. He'd been an important man. And I, his daughter, standing his shadows, would grow more anonymous, noticed by nobody. My father was not the Marian kind, but at age 40, he got hitched to my gorgeous torch singer mother shortly after getting her pregnant. For a while, he'd been despondent after receiving a written rejection from the army for having high blood pressure. 
He had been dreaming of combat, not domesticity. Though both of my parents knew how to find a doctor to end an unwanted pregnancy, my father got dewy-eyed at the prospect of having a son. My parents tied the knot at City Hall exactly seven months before their first child. My sister was born. My mother's attempts to keep my father's interests at the dining room table and in the bedroom, festooned with chintz floral draperies and flouncy bed skirts, consistently failed. And then she gave birth to yet another frilly daughter, me. I was the littlest and most girly girl on the planet. I was a puzzle to my father, who treated me as if I were as fragile as China. He discouraged my enthusiastic running jumps from across the room onto his belly when he was sleeping. He cautioned me about paper cuts if I tried to sit in his lap while he was reading the Sunday Times. I was the daughter with blonde ringlets, the one who wrote tormented love poems before age 12. And as far as my father was concerned, I never picked up a baseball bat, never had a skinned knee. My mother scrubbed my dirty neck and sent me out to see him on weekends, all perfumed and powdered, not at all like the sturdy son daddy would have loved. Except for the late night weeknights when I took off his shoes and helped him stagger drunk to the bed, he would squirm when I hugged him. The older I got, the more uncomfortable daddy became with my personality. As a teenager, I finally turned my attention to more accessible things, such as neighborhood boys. They were simple adults, but they thought I was exciting, even if it was because my father had bodyguards in box seats at Yankee Stadium. That summer in 1962, as I hung around our lake house, lounging on the raft with my friends, concentrating on getting the perfect tan. Daddy came up on the weekends and puttered around. We rarely spoke. The lake residents had been grappling all summer with a festering cesspool at the back of the Chadwick's property. A family of beavers had dammed up an inlet. To get the critters out, my father went to town hall for a gun permit. While daddy had never seen the badges I won at camp, I was a junior National Riflery Association marksman. When he put the gun permit on the dining room table, I put my hand on it and boasted. I could hit a slow lumbering beaver with just one shot. My father seemed amused. He offered me the first crack at shooting them. Later, waiting for dusk, we stood hip to hip on the flagstone steps at the front door. I hoisted the 22 onto my shoulder. As soon as I saw an undulating mound of black mud at the end of the swamp, I pulled the trigger. I only remember the deafening explosion. In the silence that followed, I rested the butt of the rifle down near my feet. And daddy reached out 
as if he were going to tousle my hair, as if he were going to pull me close to him, hug me, kiss me, praise me, do it all in one gesture that would make up for my 16 years of hunger for his sober attention. But he stopped. Didn't know you had it in you, kid, was all he said. He reached to take the gun back into the house, to the rack where he kept it on display. I smiled. I knew I should smile when I was successful. But moments later, I wound up in front of the toilet, retching. The horror of having killed a living thing just to show daddy what I could do made me sob made me vomit up the longing and the sorrow I'd been swallowing for too long. It made me know I would have to stop trying to be what I wasn't, whatever that was, or surely it would kill me. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. To you, happy birthday, Mr. President, happy birthday to you. Well, that about wraps it up for June, for what a story. Next month, let's do post-patriotism. It'll be the end of July. And I think maybe we can rustle up some star-spangled banner memories. Thanks. What a story. Ina Chadwick.